0: God wants his spiritual children to grow up. Ephesians 4.15 He wants us to progress like we saw last week from immaturity from that spiritual infancy to maturity or we could say spiritual adulthood. And so in this series over the next several weeks we're exploring this theme and we want to know what it is and especially how it happens. And last time we try to get our minds around this concept of maturity and this target that we're pursuing. We saw that even though we will never reach perfection completely, at least not now, that we can reach what we're calling maturity. We can and we must progress from this spiritual infancy to a spiritual adulthood. And we defined maturity last time like this we said it was a pattern of thinking. A pattern of desiring and a pattern of acting like Jesus. So it's a pattern of thinking. It happens in our thought life, thinking like Christ, desiring what he desires, and acting as he would act. And it's consistency is the key. It's not perfection, but it's direction, it's patterns. That's the essence of maturity. But then we also saw that the Bible gives some clear indicators when a person is mature and when they're immature. Give some evidences, biblical writers give some evidences of maturity, we might say. Some things like, a mature person knows that they've not arrived. They know they've not arrived. They know that they are not perfect, and so they're humbled. They're refreshingly humble. They're not free from sin, they just know how to handle it when it happens. And beyond humility, we also saw that a mature person is zealously pursuing growth. They've got their eyes fixed on Christ and his righteousness, and they're pursuing it. They're not stagnant. They're chasing Christ. They're chasing his righteousness as their greatest goal. And mature people then are fixed on God's word. God's word is an anchor for them. It's not their own feelings, not their own desires. They're stabilized by the truth. And then over time, that stability bears fruit their lives come to reflect that stability they're reflecting more and more of Christ's own character in, in their marriages, their work, their church life. And then as a result, they're increasingly useful to others. They know how to help when people are ensnared in sin. They know what their gifts are and they're they're active in using those gifts in the body. And the Lord's producing fruit, energizing them in their in their gifts. And finally, we saw that the mature person rejoices in suffering. Rejoice in suffering. He knows God's purposes in a a trial. He might not be happy about it, but he willingly brings himself underneath it and chooses to rejoice. Now, there's a lot more we could say, but that at least gives us a start and a humbling start, right? Right? Talked to a number of you after that first message. Well, tonight is your night, because it's going to be a lot of encouragement. But tonight, though, as we pivot, we need to ask another really, really crucial question when it comes to this theme, this concept of maturity, and it's it's this. We see the goal out in front of us, but how do we get there? How do we get there? How does maturity happen? Or or we could say it another way, who does it? Is it me, or is it God, or both? Do I eagerly pursue it, or is that legalism? Am I striving in my own efforts? I know I've got to be involved at some level, but how much am I involved in this process? How much is God involved? Does he do it all? Or should I just wait on him, or should I seek it out myself? Is my only job to rest? To try, to try to stop striving. Let him do the maturing. Or does he give me the resources and then just say, go do it? So these are the kinds of questions that plague most of us, I think, in, when it comes to thinking through growth. And I think we could, we could boil it all down, if you want to kind of simmer it down. You, you're really asking, should we focus on human effort in the maturing process, or should we focus on divine empowerment, Right? It's a question between those two. Do we focus on human effort, or do we focus on divine empowerment? And historically, if you go back, rewind the clock, Christians have often found themselves trending toward one of these two truths, and usually to the exclusion of the other truth, right? So we might call it the left ditch and the right ditch on the road to growth. So on the left side of that road, over in the ditch, is the exclusive emphasis on human effort. And historically, this this has been known as a lot of things, but pietism would be one kind of buzzword. The emphasis in this movement was on the human effort that was required to live a godly life. And today, this might look like a person who's zealous to obey the Lord. They've got their plan, they're working the plan, all good so far. But these folks typically aren't praying that much since they're emphasizing their own efforts. They trend toward being judgmental of others, of those slackers, right, who don't do as much as they do or they don't exert as much effort as as they do. They often view themselves as much more mature than they really are, less sinful than they actually are. And they're known to offer overly simplistic solutions to people's problems like just read your bible and pray man like stop it like stop stop doing that you know of follow me be, be be like me go to church stop sinning but sometimes the person who emphasizes human effort sometimes they start realizing that all their efforts aren't working especially as they start to see how insidious and deceptive their own hearts can be and they start to see how high god's standards actually are and 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 they hear something like, do everything without complaining. And they think, what? How can I possibly do that? I'm trying so hard, but I can't seem to ever measure up. When can I ever rest knowing that I'm doing enough? Discouragement sets in, then despondency, maybe even depression. And many times, this triggers a reaction to that other extreme, to the other ditch to the exclusive focus on God's role and not ours. And historically, this has been known as quietism. Pietism on the one, quietism on the other. Some well-meaning Christians, they might hear the plight of that, that pietist, the one who's focusing on human effort, and they'll say, oh, brother, listen, you just need to rest. Your problem is that you think it's on you. What you need to do is stop striving and rest in God. He loves you and he's going to grow. You just let him do the work. And to the weary soul, that sounds pretty good. We've all been there. But often lying under the surface is a minimization of human effort or an outright rejection of it altogether. You don't want to be doing that in your own strength. We hear that all the time, right? What does that mean? And so the pietist becomes a quietist. They react. Somebody who expects God to do all the work in transformation. And the quietist, this kind of person, thinks that any effort in the Christian life, any effort beyond just simply surrendering to Jesus, is legalistic or off base. Usually they're not as concerned about their sin, at least not initially, because it's God's responsibility to change them. And they're waiting on God. And the extent of their fight against sin would be just, I'm praying about that. I'm praying about that. I know, I know, I'm, I know I'm sinning in this area, but I'm, I'm praying about it. Or I'm just trying to rest in God. or I'm trying to surrender to God. But see, there's pitfalls here too, because eventually, when prayer doesn't seem to work, they too can grow very discouraged, very despondent, even depressed. Because God does not seem to be answering their prayers. They find they're not making as much progress as they had hoped. And I think we all, at various times, kind of trend toward one or the other of those extremes. But when we turn to Scripture, what we find is the biblical authors embrace both of those extremes fully. They embrace our responsibility in the growth process. And they also embrace God's empowerment in it. But here's the key. They don't just set both of these out as, as true. I mean, they do that. Not, they don't just do this. Like there are two independent truths that are unrelated. These truths relate to each other. They relate to each other like gas relates to an engine. One is a motivation, and the other is an instruction. What do I mean by that? Well, in Scripture... We are instructed, we are commanded to strive for growth, to pursue maturity ourselves. But the reality is that God is working in us. He's working in us to motivate us to that end. That's, that's the motivation. God is at work in us, it's the gas in the tank, if you will, it's the fuel. It fuels us to really get after maturity. It fuels our hope. It fuels our zeal. It fuels our endurance. It fuels our intense pursuit of maturity in this life. And that is exactly how God intends these two truths to work together. And we see this relationship with crystal clarity again in Paul's letter to the Philippians. If you want to turn there real quick, by way of introduction here. Philippians is such a helpful little book on this theme. Philippians 2, this is a familiar text, no doubt. Most of you know this well. But you see this relationship of the instruction and then the motivation together here in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. On the one hand, Paul commands that we exert effort in the growth process. He commands it. There's the instruction. Then he motivates this command. With the reality that from start to finish, God is the one who's energizing and empowering our obedience. So look with me; I have it up on the screen as well. Philippians two, verse twelve. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Here's the command: work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For there's a motivation; it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Obey. Why? Because God's at work. Instruction, motivation. Clearly, in Paul's mind, both are absolutely crucial when it comes to our maturity. We strive in working on our salvation because God is working in us. Human, ev- human effort and divine empowerment works together for our transformation. Or we could say it like this. We are strengthened to strive. Easy way to remember it. We're strengthened to strive or we're empowered for effort. We're strengthened to strive and we're empowered for effort. And tonight, what I want to do is I want to hone in a little bit more on the God side of this equation. On God's role in our maturity. And specifically, I want to look at how God does this, how he matures us. I want us to consider the incredible provision the Lord has made for our growth. To realize how committed he is to our progress. I want us to see the power that is available to every single one of us, the power that's at our disposal. And why? Why camp out right here in a series on maturity that's going to end up focusing the majority of it on our role? Because if we miss this, we miss the motivation. The gas tank is empty. But if we see it, if we understand, if we grasp these realities by faith, it will fuel us. It will motivate us to lay it all on the line for our growth. And what I want tonight to be, just lay my cards on the table. What I want tonight to be is a giant encouragement to you. It's my goal that you leave here with wind in your sails. With confidence that just as God began the work, Philippians 1 6, he's going to be faithful to complete it. He's going to see it to completion. He's committed to finishing the work he started in you. So tonight, we're going to look at four provisions. Well, really, we're going to look at three, okay? And then I'm going to introduce the fourth one at the end. I'm going to cover the fourth one more in depth the next time I'm up here. I say that now so that you don't panic, okay? When we get to the I'm like running into point number three, and he's, he's out of time. It's okay. All right? Just a little disclaimer out front. So we're looking at four provisions the Lord's made for our maturity. Four massively encouraging provisions, and they're interrelated. They're not, don't think of them as independent. These go together. All these, as you'll see, these, all, these, all these provisions go together. And the first, the most foundational provision that we've been given is none other than God himself residing in us, the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the most foundational provision we've been given. It's the greatest provision a human could ever hope for, the Spirit of the living God residing within them. When it comes to conforming us to the image of His Son, No one is more powerful. No one is more influential. No one is more insightful. No one is more successful than the Holy Spirit. He is our greatest provision. We've desperately needed God's Spirit since the fall, haven't we? Desperately. Since Genesis 3, humans have been spiritually dead and spiritually deceived. That means, put it in our terms... We have had no hope for this thing we're calling maturity. No hope for real or lasting change apart from God's indwelling presence. Think about the nation of Israel, at least most of them. Having access to God's truth didn't transform the nation of Israel, did it? Why not? because most of them didn't have eyes to see or ears to hear. They didn't have a circumcised heart that would come from the presence of the Spirit of God. And it was this gift of the promised Spirit that would solve Israel's problem of disobedience. Look with me. I've got it up on the screen here. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel predicts, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I'll put my spirit within you. What will that accomplish? Causing you to walk in my statutes and being careful to obey my rules. The spirit is the answer and the spirit indwells every believer here tonight a lot more we can say about that. But I want to ask you, do you realize that the reason you even had ears to hear was because of the spirit's prior work in your life. He overcame your spiritual deadness and we could say he he gave you life. The spirit enlivens us. He came to your uncircumcised heart, that heart of stone, to change the metaphor, and he made it a heart of flesh when you heard the gospel. And beloved, that is why you believed. Paul says explicitly that this heart circumcision, this regeneration, is by the Spirit. Meaning, the Spirit is the agent. Look at this. He says in Romans, a text we've covered, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This circumcision of the heart is by the Spirit. Now, why is this crucial that we see this? Because it shows us that God initiated your maturity, not you. It was ultimately God's choice to graciously give you life, not yours. Did you choose? Yes. But why? Because God gave you life. And here's how it all connects. If he began the work, he will bring it to completion. He? Philippians 1.6. It's this truth that gives us ultimate hope for change, even if we feel defeated by sin in the moment. Why? Because God will not abandon His renovation. He will not abandon His child that He brought forth of His own will. He will not leave us in our sin. Our growth rides ultimately on God and not on us. Hallelujah. That's encouraging. And as glorious as that is, there's more. His maturing ministry in our lives does not stop at conversion, as you well know. The Spirit's ministry continues in illumination, or we could say He illumines us. Paul talked about this ongoing work of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 2. And he was confident that the Spirit would continue to teach the Corinthians as he wrote this the very letter that he was writing to them. Look, look with me in 1 Corinthians 2 on the screen. He says, Now we've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we, as the apostles, might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by who? The Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. He was confident, Paul was confident the Spirit would continue teaching the Corinthians, by extension us, as he wrote this letter to them. What a sweet encouragement it is to know that as we read truth, as we listen to preaching, as we try to understand it with our study Bibles, that we are not left to ourselves. We have a divine teacher indwelling us. What an encouragement to know that he will guide us sermon after sermon, text after text over time. That he'll keep us from the landmines. That he'll keep us faithful. Giving us more and more insight into our hearts more and more insight over time into the lives of our old man or old woman, more and more insight, more discernment in truth and its application to our lives. That's his ministry of illumination to you. But not only does he enliven us, luminous, but he also empowers us to live a new life. He empowers us to live a new life. There's new power that we did not have before. Paul says it's part of the Spirit's ministry to help us kill sin. To help us kill sin. He gives us the power to kill sin. It's an implication from Romans eight thirteen. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, notice this, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's this interesting interplay, again, with divine empowerment and human responsibility. By the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The Spirit has a killing ministry in your life. We might feel powerless at times over our fleshly desires. But we cannot think like that. The reality is that the spirit within us is able to help us rise up over those sinful impulses and he will help us deal the decisive death blow to those fleshly impulses in the moment with his sword, the word of God. And the power extends just beyond killing sin to the, other, to the positive pursuits in the Christian life as well. All fruit, Paul says, is the fruit of who? Who? Fruit of who? The Spirit. Galatians 5. Meaning he is the ultimate source of all that positive fruit in your life. It's the Spirit. Even your spiritual gifts, stuff you use in the, ex- in the, in the body, where do they come from? The Spirit. Not only does he give them to you, but Paul says he also empowers you in their use. He makes you Effective in the body, as you use them. So to sum it up, it's power to live a new life, a new fruitful life like we heard this morning from Romans 6. So, even from that quick survey, it is clear that God has given you the greatest provision imaginable. You've received the promise. The promise of the Spirit. But the Spirit doesn't work in a vacuum, does He? He uses something specific to transform us, something specific to bring us to maturity, and that is the second provision is the truth. And it shouldn't surprise us that they're related, the spirit and the truth. Think about some of these connections. The spirit is described as the spirit of truth in John 15, 26. He's all about it. In the Spirit's capable hands, the truth is a precious and essential provision for our maturity. Why is that? Well, because once our deadness is overcome, our most pressing problem is we do not know what is true. We are easily deceived, in other words. We're prone to thinking that we know what is best. Our default setting is to trust our own assessments of things. But the truth, the truth shines a light into our darkened hearts. The truth shows us what is real. And now, with the Spirit's power, we have an opportunity to believe the truth instead of lies. So let's take a second and get a little snapshot of some of the ways that the truth brings us to maturity. Hebrews tells us that the Word of God helps us to discern our hearts. Again, we're not going to be comprehensive here. I've only got a few minutes with you. Okay? But it's giving you a snapshot. The truth discerns our hearts. The truth, in other words, enables us to see the hard truth about ourselves. It convicts us. Hebrews 4 describes the Word of God as a sword, a surgeon's scalpel. It dissects us at the most profound level. Look at Hebrews 4. The Word of God, again, familiar, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and, here it is, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When it says it discerns or it reveals the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, that's as deep as it gets. Do you realize the Bible knows you better than you do? You don't know yourself that well, but the Bible does. It reads your mail. And it's our only infallible guide to what's actually going on inside of us. It dissects us at the most profound level. It's, if we put it in today's terms, it's our only reliable psychology. It doesn't just tell us what we do, but it interprets why we do what we do. The thoughts and intentions of the heart. Our motivations. And that is gloriously encouraging. As difficult as this might be at first blush, right? Like if nobody likes a sword, um, penetrating your uh, between joints and marrow. But this is incredibly encouraging. Why? Because we are really good at evasion. We're really good at playing the victim. Really good at shifting blame. But the Word of God will not let us do that. It reveals to us our truest of motives. And as we will see in the rest of this series, if we do not recognize that, we will not grow. That's the gatekeeper. You won't make any progress in maturity if you are not willing to own what the scriptures say about the thoughts and intentions of your heart. But what a precious, precious provision for a deceived humanity to feel the truth about who we are. Now, as crucial as that is, there's more. The Bible doesn't just bag and tag us. It also provides solutions. Or as Paul says in Romans 12, the truth renews our minds. It renews that inner man. Again, familiar text, Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Transformation is occurring by this renewal. Inner renewal, this renewal of the mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The truth helps us to pinpoint the lies, yes, but it also helps us to obliterate them with truth. And that's what Paul's getting at here when he calls us to renew our minds. Maturity comes, transformation comes as we learn to rely on the truth as we see it in God's word instead of what we naturally and automatically think. We grow, in other words, as we learn to rest in what God objectively says instead of what we feel. With the truth, we have an anchor. We have a fixed point to root us, a new set of glasses to help us see things as they truly are. We don't have to flounder around in our feelings anymore. We don't have to live enslaved to the opinions of others and just constantly doing that. We have God's very words to stand on, God's very words to trust and to live by, and they will not let us down. What a provision. And from this renewed thinking, we change. We're we're enabled then to discern what's good, what's best, what's wisest. And we also choose to align our lives with the wise thing, with the truth, to practice the truth. The truth then also transforms our behaviors. The truth transforms our behaviors. Hebrews 5.14 says, But solid food is for the mature, For those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So this means then that coming to believe what's true and learning to orient our lives around it instead of what we might feel or think in ourselves, this is central to the process of maturity. It's what mature people do. It's central to being set free from these patterns of sin like depression and anxiety and lust and jealousy. We have to deliberately choose to live in light of what is true. Or as Hebrews says, to make it our constant practice to discern the good and choose it. This is nothing different than what Jesus says in John 8, that you will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. And the context is set you free from enslavement to sin. The truth is going to change the way you live. And the truth, this transforming work of truth, is the the principal ministry of the Spirit in the life of the believer. It's the sword in his hand. So we've got two provisions under our belt, the Spirit and the truth. But where does all this happen? Where is the Spirit most powerfully ministering his truth? According to Scripture, the Spirit is at work in a very special and most beautiful place on earth. It's in the midst of his corporate people, the church. The church, then, is our third provision that the Lord has given to us for our maturity, for our growth. It's been said before, but you can think of the church like a greenhouse. Okay? It's a warm shelter for young plants to take root and grow up. So the church. The church is our third provision. Again, I said these these things were interrelated, these provisions. So think about something. We shouldn't be surprised to see the church is connected with both the truth and the spirit in Scripture. Think about it. The church is described as the pillar and support of what? The truth. 1 Timothy 3.15, meaning the church is the one place on earth that God has designed to promote, is the pillar, and to defend support of the truth. And the church is also connected with the spirit too, isn't it? Think about how the church is described. It's the new what? It starts with a T. Temple. The church is the new temple, and it's the temple where the Spirit dwells, where He resides. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Ephesians 2.22. That means then when you simply gather together with God's people, when you commit yourself to a healthy local assembly, you can expect God's Spirit to be at work through His truth to mature you. But some Christians are tempted to think that the the place of real maturing, the place of real change, is somewhere outside the church, right? Somewhere like a therapist's office, maybe. People who have experienced little or even shallow help from the church often think this way, and it's understandable. Sadly, many churches today don't actually shepherd their own members, Others might be tempted to think of the church as a good thing, yeah, but maybe an extra thing or a bonus, kind of the cherry on top of of the dessert. Take it or leave it. If you're part of a church, that's great, but what really matters is your own personal walk with the Lord, your own quiet time, you and God. Now, as we're going to see in the next few weeks, we are all about your personal walk with Christ. A lot of change happens there. But the church is not peripheral when it comes to your growth. God has designed it to be absolutely central to be necessary for your maturity. It's one of his gracious provisions for our growth. But how? How exactly does God provide for our growth in the church? How does he grow us here? Well, again, pretty basic, but let's look at a few of these. Bring them together for your encouragement. He does it through leadership. One of the most fundamental ways he he grows his people are through its leaders, imperfect leaders, but through the ministry of the leaders. According to Ephesians 4.12, the Lord himself has given leaders to his church to mature her, to equip the rest of his people to be useful in their gifts. Look over here in Ephesians 4. Familiar text? He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers i.e. the leadership, to do something. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, unto what end? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, here it is, to mature manhood. Measure the stature of the fullness of Christ. So my point is that God has given us leaders for our maturity. As they work to equip us And Paul knew the price tag of leadership. Listen to what he told his his pastoral assistant, Timothy. He says, Keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. Keep a close watch, not just on the teaching, but on yourself and the teaching. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul knew that leaders must make sure they're always pursuing faithfulness in life and doctrine, in how they live in secret, and in what they teach in public. Why? Because literally, salvation depends on it from a human level. People can be led astray by unfaithful leaders, and that is a sobering thought. But equally encouraging is what can happen through good leadership, right? Through leaders who meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. A church with faithful leaders will experience tremendous transformation. How so? These leaders will work hard in the word of God to make it clear so that you can know what God's actually said and how it applies to your life. They'll make themselves available to you to try to answer your questions and point you in the right direction. They'll open their lives and their homes to you, and you'll be able to watch how they interact with their own family and with others. They'll intercede for you by name. They'll counsel you through difficult issues. As they make decisions as leaders, they'll depend on the Lord for, in His Word for wisdom. They won't do what seems right to them in their own eyes, and you will be benefited spiritually by those decisions. They'll care about Christ's interests over their own personal interests being willing to lay their lives down for your good. Now, all that is just detail of what Peter's getting at when he calls the elders to shepherd the flock of God. 1 Peter 5. These are the very kinds of things that Peter has in mind. The Lord himself has provided leaders to help you mature, to shepherd you, to equip you. And one of the tasks that leaders do in particular is they preside over our corporate worship services. So corporate worship as well is another thing the Lord's designed in His church to mature His people. Corporate worship. When I say that, I'm talking about everything that happens on Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings in our church life together. It's by the Lord's command Because he's commanded it, that we read scripture, that we preach, that we sing, that we pray together, that we observe the ordinances ordinances together. It's by his command. He's commanded us to do those very things, and he's designed it all for our good, for our growth. Speaking of preaching, let's think about that for a minute, kind of incredible. I'm not pitting it against personal Bible study, but just kind of hear me out. Think about the centrality of preaching in the life of the church. Do you realize that for many eras of church history, Christians did not have their own copy of God's word for a long time? Think about what that would be like. Our Lord literally sustained and matured his people through his, this public ministry of reading the scriptures aloud and preaching it shows you the value he puts on the corporate gathering, doesn't it? It shows you why he's commanded us not to neglect these things. And even stuff we do on a regular basis, like the ordinances, are designed for our growth. Every time we listen to a baptism testimony, what happens? (laughs) Aren't we deeply encouraged? And communion, what a blessing that is. We're reminded of the sufficiency of Christ's death for us, of his love for us. We're reminded to be faithful to him in return, and we are encouraged to unity in our relationships, to make things right with other believers if we haven't. What a transforming ordinance. How maturing is that? And speaking of our relationships, that's, that's another way the Lord uses the church to mature us. Well, I've got some text on here for you for the uh, corporate services. You know these. First Timothy 4, Colossians 3. But when it comes to relationships, that's another another one of these ways that God's designed the church to mature us, to be in relationship with each other. In other words, it's not just the leadership and the corporate worship. Both are very important, but it's also the people that mature us. When we commit to a church, we have access to all kinds of relationships relationships that God has designed to help us mature. And that is great news for every single one of us and especially the immature among us here. This is glorious news for the Christian who is ensnared in some kind of life dominating sin. Right? They're debilitated by anxiety. They're overwhelmed by lust. Do you know that if you feel stuck in sin, the Lord has made specific provision for you through someone else, through someone who's mature or spiritual. And he's made that provision right here in this body at Timberlake. Paul says that the people who are ensnared in sin need a mature believer to come alongside them and to restore them. We talked about that in Galatians, when we looked at Galatians 6.1. one. It says, brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. If you're immature and ensnared, it's like you're caught in a trap in the woods and you need somebody who knows how those traps work to come and get you out. You don't know how to get out of it. You need them to help you navigate not just the trap, but also to get out of the woods that's also full of traps. You needed them to teach you how to avoid those other traps that are laying there covered by leaves, how to see them, how to spot them in in the distance, and to avoid them. And to get back out of those woods and on the path of discipleship and fruitful living. That's what you need. And if that's you tonight, if you're ensnared, please let someone know you need help. We'll work to connect you with the right person who can actually provide that help. This person who is spiritual, not perfect. But they have a consistent testimony of, of evidencing the fruit of the Spirit in their life. That's restoration, and that's what the Lord's provided in the church. But beyond that, restoring ministry, even though they're just being around other people in the church, other Christians are going to have a positive influence in our life. The buzzword is called we call that body life, right? We, we say that all the time around here, body life. To use the language of Hebrews ten. When we gather, we're stirred up to more love and good works. Right? Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When we come into the body, the implication here is that people are going to be considering how to stir up, stir up each other. That, that stirring up works going to happen as we... Don't neglect meeting together as we gather. We see the examples of other godly folks and we're stirred to imitate their examples. And not only are we stirred up by their examples, but we're also provoked to love when we hear about needs. When you get in your Sunday school or your small group and you hear about how hard a pregnancy's been or how a friend is, has an upcoming surgery, how some, some, somebody's burdened under a particular trial, What happens? The Spirit prompts you to help them. He's stirring you up to more love. He's empowering you in the gifts He's given you to use those gifts for the good of the body. And that's bringing maturity to you. That's growing you. And did you know that the Lord even ordains those tough moments in church relationships too for our maturity? Now, that's a Different kind of provoking than uh, (laughs) probably the author of Hebrews intended there. But it counts. It applies. If we're going to mature, the Spirit is going to produce fruit in us, the fruit of patience, gentleness, and self-control. So what has to happen? We have to have opportunities for patience, self-control, gentleness. The Spirit will lovingly lead us into these difficult relationships for His purposes. Someone in this church will be rude to you. A friend might neglect you. A church member might talk poorly about you to someone else. You'll get hurt, or you'll be serving with somebody who really presses your buttons. Don't look around. Look down. Why? So that you have the opportunity to grow. So that the Spirit can mature you in all of His beautiful fruit. So, it should be clear by now that the Lord has designed the local church to mature you. It's His greenhouse for your growth. Just gathering with God's people in faith... Just committing to a body is one of God's greatest provisions for your maturity. But what about when you're not with the church? What if you've got a tough work environment? And that's where you spend, I don't know, 80% of your time? What if you come from an unbelieving family? And you've got to go back to them on, on, on spring break or summer break. What if you're trying to parent those unregenerate little people? What about the monotonous daily grind? Does the Lord make any provision for that? For Monday through Saturday? We know the answer. He does. God has even designed the world. The world. For your growth the world, and the sufferings you experience in it to work together for your ultimate good, your ultimate conformity to the image of his son. Or for using our category, he's working to mature you even in enemy territory. Now, since this is such an important topic, like I said at the beginning, I'm saving this one for next time. Okay? I was going to try to do all four of these in one, but I got to number four and I was like, nope, we're going we're gonna to bump this one out uh, because it's so important just to have a synthesis on how God uses the world and suffering in our maturity. So that's next time. I'm going to devote an entire message to that, that final provision and dial in especially how the sufferings and trials that we face are used mightily in the Lord's loving hands for our maturity. But as we wrap up this evening, what's our... What's our major takeaway? Well, I said at the beginning, I want you to step back, look at these provisions, and to be encouraged. I want you to feel the wind at your back that God is profoundly for you in this process. He is not against you. He's taken up residence within you Overcoming your death with life. He's given you a new capacity to believe what is true. He's committed to teaching it to you. He has designed a perfect environment for growth to happen and given you a congregation of people to help you in that. And He's committed to testing and refining your faith to be even stronger and more genuine in the world. So if you feel immature... If you're wondering whether or not you can actually make progress. If you've been skeptical up to this point, if you can actually become mature in your life, you can because your God is with you. It will not be easy. We will talk about that. Any mature saint in here can testify to you that it will not be easy. It will cost you your life. But it is possible. God is working in you, beloved, and he will not abandon his children. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would work through the power of your spirit to encourage your people here tonight. And as we end, we fellowship, as we leave, that your words from Romans your words from tonight would encourage their souls, motivating them to pursuing growth, pursuing a life of fruitfulness in the time you've given them, in the years we have left. We pray it all in Christ's name, amen.